Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, Dan Ambender here. It's time to dive back into our comprehensive adult congenital heart disease series co-chaired by Drs. Agnes Kogso, Dan Clark, and Josh Safe. In this episode, you'll hear all about Epstein Anomaly from UCLA adult congenital heart disease greats, faculty expert Dr. Jeanette Lin, and our ACHD fellow lead for this episode, Dr. Prashant Venkatesh, a.k.a. The Master P. We thank our collaborators at the Adult Congenital Heart Association, the CHIP Network, and Heart University. These are organizations with incredibly committed people who work tirelessly to improve the lives of those living with ACHD. You can find the links to these organizations in the episode description. Remember, Cardi Nerds is an independently fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Be sure to collect free CMB using the link in the episode description. And do be a nerd. Spread the word by rating and reviewing us on your favorite podcast app. And more importantly, by telling your friends, family, and colleagues about the show. All right, enough for me. Let's get on with the Epstein Anomaly story. Do enjoy. What's up, Cardio Nerds? Welcome back to our in-depth ACHD series as we dive into the delaminated tricuspid valve leaflets of Epstein Anomaly. This discussion is brought to us by the UCLA ACHD program, and so I'd like to start off with a warm welcome to Dr. Prashant Venkatesh. Prashant is a first-year ACHD fellow at UCLA. He did his medical school at Weill Cornell in Doha, Qatar, his internal medicine residency in New York Presbyterian Hospital, Wild Cornell Medicine in New York City, and his cardiovascular disease fellowship at UCLA, where he has stayed on to pursue his ACHD training. Prashant has lived in four different countries throughout his life, and his experiences in each have enriched him and enabled him to better understand and bond with people from a variety of different cultural and socioethnic backgrounds. Prashant is an avid cricket fan, loves to cook, explore, and enjoy the diverse food scene in L.A., he also likes to travel, hike, run in his spare time. Prashant, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Josh. And thank you to the entire CardioNerds team for having me on your show. I'm a big fan of the CardioNerds podcast and I regularly tune into your podcast whenever I can. You guys, I must say, have done a fantastic job of disseminating cardiology knowledge, not only to the entire cardiology community, but to the medical community at large. And I definitely have to say this, that you guys really know how to make learning fun. I've loved the nuclear medicine series with Dr. Jabber in particular, and all your prevention podcasts with people such as Dr. Blumenthal. So I'm so thrilled that I'm on with you, and especially that you're starting an ACHD series, which really was much needed in our community at large. So thank you so much for having me again. It gives me great joy to introduce someone I know very, very well to the show, Dr. Jeanette Lim. Dr. Lin did her medical school and internal medicine residency at UC San Diego, followed by her adult cardiovascular disease fellowship at UC Irvine and her advanced ACHD fellowship training here at UCLA. She has remained at UCLA since then, having been on the ACHD faculty for the last nine years and has been the fellowship program director for the ACHD program for the last five years. I've known Dr. Lin for the last three to four years now, and I can personally attest to not only her brilliance as a clinician and an imager, but also to her natural skills as an educator. 
She has this masterful ability of breaking down really complex anatomic and physiologic concepts in ACHD into really simple and easy to understand bits. Having spoken to all the fellows who rotated through our program in ACHD, they've all really loved learning from her. And I've worked with her in clinic as well. Working with her in clinic and learning from her at bedside has taught me so much, not just about ACHD in particular, but the art of doctoring in general. And her patients truly adore her for her really kind and caring manner at the bedside. I must add that she's been an amazing mentor for me and has taught me so much, not just about ACHD, but a lot of life lessons as well. And she's just a super cool and fun person to be around. She has taught me so much of what I'm going to be discussing today with you all. And it's a true honor to share this platform with her. Dr. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you for the warm introduction, Prashant. We were thrilled to recruit you to UCLA for your general cardiology fellowship four years ago and are so excited that you are joining us as a colleague in this very special field of ACHD. Our UCLA cardiology fellows still whisper in awed tones about your heart-stopping performance at the 2019 ACC Jeopardy competition, where you answered a question about contraindications to ASD closure to win the game for Team UCLA. You've earned your nickname Master P, and you really bring that level of excellence to everything that you do, and it's just been an absolute joy to work with you. Well, thank you so much, and I must say the pleasure has been entirely mine. I don't know what would have happened, and I got that question wrong in the Jeopardy semifinals, so I'm glad that things worked out the way they did. Dr. Lin, having been your fellow and chatting with you about your experiences right from the time you got interested in ACHD to your perspective on the current state of the field, has really given me a great deal of insight over the last few years I've known you. And I think our audience would truly love to hear about how you got interested in ACHD. You know, our interest can be captured by the things that we have exposure to. And in medical school and in residency, I actually had very little exposure to ACHD patients. And as a result, I didn't even know that ACHD was even a cardiology subspecialty. Fortunately, I did my cardiology fellowship at a program that was just starting an ACHD clinic at that time. And as we say, you know, you get bitten by the ACHD bug. And once you get bitten by this bug, you realize that this is what you absolutely have to do in your life. Part of what drew me to ACHD, of course, is the physiology. We all go into cardiology because we love physiology, and nowhere is physiology more important than in understanding ACHD. I also love that we become a really integral part of our patients' lives for decades, and that we get to guide them through decisions about family planning, care for them through pregnancy, middle age, and to their senior years. I joined this field 10 years ago, and it's just been incredible to be just part of this ACHD community. You just will not find a more committed, hardworking, and passionate group of providers all working together to advance the care of this patient population. Thank you for that, Dr. Lin. And, you know, through some of the past discussions we've had and in planning this incredible ACHD series with Josh and the team, really getting an appreciation for all the things that you talk about with regards to why you love the field so much. You know, I think one there's this incredible cognitive stimulation, right? Like all the normal rules and things we take for granted fall apart, right? The anatomy is different. The human dynamics are different. And you really have to go back to your core physiological concepts. And then the connection that you make with your patient, right? So beyond the cognitive landscape, there's this like satisfaction and fulfillment from doing what what we all signed up for, right? Taking it back to the patient. And I'm thinking back to, you know, our case episode 
with Stanford, where we got to learn about this incredibly human person, Jeremy Keck, who was born with a complex adult congenital heart disease and passed shortly before our case recording. And we had his wife on to tell us about who he was, the life and legacy of Jeremy Keck. And we learned so much from his perspective, his family's perspective about what it's like living with ACHD. And so, you know, through that lens, I'm so excited to dive into the series. I also think for the duration of this episode, Josh, I'm wondering if you should refer to Prashant as Master P. It only seems appropriate. I'm down with that. <laughs> so with that, let's get started. So Master P, who was Dr. Epstein? Well, before I answer that, I want to make sure that I get all your nicknames by the end of the show. So just to make things fair. <laughs> but but yes, Master P is one of the many nicknames that I've been given here in my ACHD fellowship. And anything goes at this point, to be honest. But I, I actually like Master P, though I have no connection with rap. And I, I very recently knew or came to know who Master P actually was. But this name nickname's been there for a good while before I actually knew who he was but, or his. But going back to your question... Yeah, so Willem Epstein was a German physician who lived way back in the uh, 19th century from 1836 to 1912. He had a, looks like he had a very long and fulfilling life, uh, especially for that time. And in 1866, he described the first known case of this anomaly, which is a 19-year-old patient who presented with cyanosis, elevated jugular venous pressure, shortness of breath, and palpitations. And this patient actually died a few days after Dr. Epstein had seen him. He described in the case report the abnormal morphology of the tricuspid valve that was found on autopsy. And as a fun fact and an aside, which I didn't know until I looked him up recently, he was also an advocate for a low-carb, high-fat diet for the treatment of obesity, which sounds very much like an early version of the keto diet, which is very much in trend these days. So seems like Dr. Epstein was a trendsetter in more ways than one. So as we learn about Epstein or Epstein's anomaly today, we stand on the shoulders of giants. Master P, can you give us an insight into what Epstein's anomaly is and some of the embryology behind its origin? Well, Amit, I think that's a great place to start. And Dr. Lin has ingrained in me over the years the concept that understanding the embryologic development of the heart is key to understanding both the anatomy and the physiology of what we see in ACHD. So if I were to describe Epstein's anomaly to someone for the very first time, I would say that it's a congenital anomaly of the tricuspid valve and the right ventricle. And let's deal with the tricuspid valve to start. The tricuspid valve has three leaflets as you know, which are the anterior, posterior, and septal leaflets. And these leaflets form during embryologic development by a process called delamination. Delamination is the process by which tissue peels away from the endocardium and the inner layers of the myocardium of the right ventricle, thereby forming leaflets of what ends up becoming the tricuspid valve. And Epstein's anomaly results when the delamination of the tricuspid valve is both defective and inadequate. We know that delamination requires programmed apoptosis, but we actually still don't know what factors, genetic or otherwise, cause this process to fail and result in valvular abnormalities. The why of congenital cardiac malformations, including valvular abnormalities, is really still largely unknown and is an area ripe for research. Interesting. Thank you so much for that. I have always been curious with delamination, knowing that it happens with both atrioventricular valves, why we see it on 
the right side and not the left. But I mean, you know, it's definitely, I agree with you. We need to research into why that may be the case. But kind of coming down along this vein, you know, so we see this issue with delamination. So hemodynamically, clinically, what are the consequences that we see from this failed delamination? Yeah. So the interesting thing is that the different leaflets of the tricuspid valve are actually affected differently by the issues with delamination and Epstein's. The leaflets with the most defective delamination are the septal leaflet and the posterior leaflet. And usually the septal leaflet is the more severely affected. Both the septal and posterior leaflets in Epstein's contain inadequate tissue because of the defective delamination and are hence small and dysplastic. And the important thing is that they also have attachment points to the right ventricular myocardium that are significantly apical relative to where they should be, which is the true annulus of the tricuspid valve. And because of this, the term apical displacement gets used a lot when referring to these leaflets. The one thing you need to remember with the term apical displacement is that the leaflets didn't actually form basally and migrate apically, as that term connotes, but rather they're apically displaced because they didn't delaminate adequately from the RV endocardium and myocardium to assume their more basal position at the true valve annulus. Exactly. So on an echocardiogram then, in the apical four-chamber view, where we are accustomed to seeing a normal tricuspid valve have a septal insertion that is one or two millimeters more apical compared with its sister valve on the other side of the septum, the mitral valve. In Epstein's anomaly, by contrast, it will appear that the septal insertion of the tricuspid valve into the septum can be one or two centimeters rather than millimeters more apical than the septal insertion of the mitral valve leaflet for the reasons that Prashant just outlined. Thanks so much. Okay, so classically, Epstein anomaly, the failure of the posterior and septal tricuspid valve leaflets to delaminate or separate from the RV myocardium results in this apical displacement that we've been discussing. That's only two leaflets of the tricuspid valve. So what's going on with the anterior leaflet? That's a great question, Josh. So unlike the septal and posterior leaflets, interestingly, the anterior leaflet does delaminate enough to have its attachment at the level of the true tricuspid valve annulus, which is where the septal and posterior leaflets are not attached to. But the anterior leaflet is by no means a normal appearing leaflet. And there are multiple problems with this leaflet in Epstein's. The anterior leaflet actually tends to have too much tissue in contrast to the septal and posterior leaflets, and is disproportionately large and elongated, almost as if to compensate for the lack of tissue in the other two leaflets. This extra redundancy of the leaflet gives it a characteristic floppy appearance that's often referred to in literature as a sail-like appearance on echocardiography because this redundant leaflet can billow as much as the sail on a sailboat would. In certain situations, the mobile part of the anterior leaflet may actually extend into the RV outflow tract and cause RV outflow tract obstruction. The anterior leaflet also often has fibrous attachments to the right ventricular free wall, and this restricts its mobility, which becomes really important to consider in the operative management of this condition, as we'll discuss later in the show. The anterior leaflet may also be defective in other ways. It may be fenestrated 
or it may have dysplastic chordae tendinae that attach it to the right ventricular myocardium. So all in all, the three leaflets of the tricuspid valve in Epstein's anomaly are all abnormal in their own ways. As you can imagine, when you have two leaflets, the septal and posterior leaflets, being really small, dysplastic, and apically positioned away from the true valve annulus, and you have this one leaflet, which is the anterior leaflet, abnormally large and redundant, but also oftentimes restrictive, you have a perfect setup for tricuspid regurgitation. Tricuspid regurgitation is almost universally present in Epstein's patient to some degree and is the most significant valve dysfunction that you're going to see in this patient population. Thanks, Prashant. I'm really enjoying this conversation, especially because so far it's really consistent with how we begin to understand structural abnormalities. I think most problems can be boiled down to three questions. What are the structural abnormalities? What are the hemodynamic consequences? And what are the clinical sequelae? So I'm getting the full picture of the structural abnormalities with regards to the tricuspid valve in Epstein anomaly, but are there any other anatomic considerations besides the tricuspid valve in this disorder to really paint the full picture here? Absolutely, Amit. And there are multiple other anatomic considerations. I must say your approach to breaking down complex cardiovascular problems about the structural, hemodynamic, and the clinical abnormalities are key to not just Epstein's anomaly, but any complex adult congenital physiology and anatomy. So I'd said at the start that Epstein's anomaly is an abnormality of both the tricuspid valve and the right ventricle. So let's talk about the right ventricle. There is an inherent myopathy that's associated with Epstein's, which occurs because the apical displacement of the tricuspid leaflets gives rise to a partition of the right ventricle into an inlet portion that extends from the true annulus to the apically displaced septal leaflet and the outlet portion of the right ventricle that lies apical to the septal leaflet attachment. So the inlet portion is continuous with the right atrium and is hence called the atrialized right ventricle. As you can imagine, since this is proximal to the apically displaced tricuspid valve leaflets, this part of the right ventricle does not contribute meaningfully to cardiac output and usually is markedly thin and dilated. And so the portion of the RV that's distal to the apical attachment of the septal leaflet is actually the true functional right ventricle. Depending upon the degree of displacement of the septal leaflet or the tricuspid valve, the size of the functional or true right ventricle can be quite small. The atrialization of the right ventricle, as you can imagine, takes out a lot of the contractile reserve of the right ventricle. And when you add to this mix significant, often severe tricuspid regurgitation, you get right ventricular dysfunction and right ventricular failure. This is really important because all patients with Epstein's anomaly will have some degree of right ventricular myopathy. And often enough, the RV myopathy is the bigger problem rather than the tricuspid regurgitation alone. Interesting fact, the underlying myopathy of Epstein's can also impact the left ventricle. And in nearly a fifth of these patients, you actually see LV dysplasia that resembles left ventricular non-compaction. And in addition to the myopathy, up to 90% of these patients will have an atrial level shunt, which is usually a patent foramen ovale or an atrial septal defect. This can be an important source of symptoms by causing cyanosis at rest, especially if the tricuspid regurgitant jet is directed at the shunt. 
and hits the shunt, causing right-to-left shunting. You can also get exercise-induced hypoxemia due to increased right-to-left shunting across the interatrial shunt from higher intracardiac pressures that would result during exercise. Also, these atrial-level shunts can predispose Epstein's patients to paradoxical emboli from deep vein thromboses. And as a result, whenever we take care of these patients in the inpatient setting, we always make sure to place bubble filters on all their peripheral IV lines to minimize the risk of these happening. Prashant just did a great job of summarizing the RV myopathy and the tricuspid valve abnormalities, keeping in mind, of course, that the result of that on the left ventricular development is that the left ventricle in many, if not the majority of Epstein's patients will be actually smaller than normal due to chronically decreased preload. One of the key sayings in congenital cardiology is no flow, no grow. So if you have a left ventricle that's chronically underfilled, you will have a left ventricle that's somewhat smaller than normal. Oh, thanks, Dr. Lin. I, um, no flow, no grow. I'm going to remember that moving forward. That's a great phrase. So, Dr. Lin, could you discuss some of the spectrum of disease severity that we see with Epstein's anomaly? It sounds like there could be a lot of room for variability in how these valves form, how the valve leaflets are dysfunctional to varying degrees, whether or not there's obstruction, whether or not there's shunting. Absolutely. One of the really fun and challenging things about congenital cardiology is that no two patients are the same. As is the case with all congenital heart defects, there is a spectrum of its disease in Epstein's anomaly. We refer to the most severe form of Epstein's as neonatal Epstein's. In neonatal Epstein's, the tricuspid valve is severely abnormal, the RV is severely dilated with severe dysfunction, and the left ventricle is hypoplastic due to chronically poor preload. These babies are critically ill and may require ECMO in consideration for neonatal heart transplantation. That would be the most severe form of Epstein's. One way in which we can define the severity of Epstein's anomaly is to use the Selle-Meyer Index, which was developed to help pediatric cardiologists predict outcomes for the neonate with Epstein's. The Selle-Meyer Index is a ratio of two numbers obtained from the echocardiogram. The numerator is the size of the functional atrium, that is, the true anatomic atrium and the atrialized portion of the right ventricle. The denominator is the sum of the areas of the functional smaller portion of the right ventricle, the left atrium, and the left ventricle. The lower the Selle-Meyer index, the better the prognosis. The higher the number, the worse the prognosis. Those with milder form of Epstein's may have normal life expectancy and may never require surgery or intervention, and contrast that with a patient with neonatal Epstein's. A patient's clinical course will ultimately be determined by the factors that Master P has mentioned, the degree of RV myopathy, the degree of tricuspid regurgitation, and or stenosis less commonly, and the size and function of the left ventricle as well. Thanks so much for that. And with that, let's get into our first case. Mr. Wolf Park is a 26-year-old man who's been experiencing one year of worsening exercise intolerance and fatigue, and additionally, two to three years of episodic palpitations. He received an ECG that was concerning for a prior MI and thus had a coronary CTA. The study showed normal coronaries, but noted an abnormal tricuspid valve. He then underwent an echocardiogram and was told he had Epstein's anomaly. Now he has been referred to you in clinic. Master P, 
What are you looking for in a bedside exam and an initial evaluation? Well, this is a case of an adult patient with uncorrected Epstein's anomaly diagnosed in adulthood. And it's actually a situation that we encounter quite frequently in our ACHD center. There are multiple things to look for on physical exam with these patients, as with many of these ACHD patients that we see. With Epstein's anomaly, contrary to what you may think, a tricuspid regurgitation murmur may or may not be heard. And this is because some patients have tricuspid regurg that is wide open enough to cause laminar flow during systole between the right ventricle and the right atrium. And this causes rapid equalization of pressures between the RA and the RV during systole, thus causing suppression of the TR murmur. So you may not hear a grade 5 or 6 blowing tricuspid regurgitation murmur. The murmur may be a grade 1 or 2, or in some cases with really severe TR, may be inaudible altogether. The other thing that you may not see on exam that you may otherwise expect to see is stall CV waves on the jugular venous pressure waveform. And this is because the functional right atrium contains the atrialized right ventricle, and as a result is often massively dilated. And this massively dilated right atrium will absorb the extra volume of tricuspid regurgitation and blunt the hemodynamic effects on the jugular venous pressure in systole. Some of the other things that you would note is a severely enlarged cardiac silhouette on exam due to severe right atrial dilation. This is more classically seen on chest x-ray and has been historically referred to as a box-shaped heart on chest x-ray. Another major diagnostic finding to pick up is the presence of cyanosis or digital clubbing which may occur due to right-to-left shunting through an interatrial level shunt in the presence of severe TR, as we have previously mentioned. I would just add to what Master P just said that extra heart sounds are common in Epstein's due to abnormal flow across the tricuspid valve. So as the flow hits the tricuspid valve, sometimes that'll generate an extra heart sound. And it's been memorably described as sounding like someone falling down the stairs, where you just kind of hear almost like they're tripping a little bit. Yeah, that's fascinating. And, you know, I'm loving the point, especially about potentially not seeing a CV wave on the JVP or maybe on a right heart cath. If the atrialized portion of the RV is just so large that it, and compliant that it absorbs that extra fluid, regurgitant uh, volume. And I'll certainly be on the lookout for these nuanced exam findings, but uh, there's just no replacing a clear window into the heart. And we talked a little bit about echo findings earlier, but Master P, what's the role for echocardiography in delineating the structural abnormalities and hemodynamic consequences of Epstein's? Well, Amit, the diagnostic modality of choice, as you mentioned, in Epstein's patients is indeed transthoracic echo. And there is so much to look out for and describe when you're doing or reading a transthoracic echo of one of these patients. So let's start with the obvious diagnostic criteria for Epstein's anomaly that that will jump out at you when you're looking at an echo with one of these patients. So the major thing to look for is the point of attachment of the septal leaflet of the tricuspid valve to the interventricular septum. And you can see this in the apical four-chamber view most easily. What you need to do to diagnose a patient with Epstein's is to measure the distance of the point of attachment of the septal leaflet to the interventricular septum from the point of attachment to the anterior mitral valve leaflet to the crux of the heart. So once again, you have 
where the septal leaf or the tricuspid valve attaches to the interventricular septum, you mark that point on the apical four-chamber view. And then you mark the point where the anterior mitral valve leaflet attaches to the interventricular septum. You measure the distance between these two points, and then you index it by dividing it by the patient's body surface area, and you get a number. And if that number is greater than 8 millimeters per meter squared, that meets echocardiographic criteria for Epstein's anomaly. And this is a board favorite. It comes up all the time on boards, this specific number of greater than 8 millimeters per meter squared. But that's not the only thing that you would look for in a patient with Epstein's who's getting an echo. You would also have to examine the large, sail-like anterior leaflet that you would readily see on multiple views. You'd want to check for RV outflow tract obstruction that it may cause, as well as evaluate for attachments of this anterior leaflet to the free wall of the right ventricle, which, as we said, would be pretty important if you're presenting this patient to a cardiac surgeon. The tricuspid regurgitation is a whole thing in itself. It'll usually be pretty significant in these patients and often severe or even torrential. But delineating the etiology of tricuspid regurgitation is important because there may be multiple reasons why a patient with Epstein's has TR. You have to assess for functional dilation of the annulus, which would result with progressive right ventricular dilation and failure. But also, you would want to look for fenestrations of the anterior valve leaflet and the size of the leaflets per se. And these are things that a cardiothoracic surgeon would really want to know should a referral to them be needed. In addition to the tricuspid valve itself, you would want to assess the right ventricle. You'd want to know how much of the right ventricle is atrialized versus functional and what the RV systolic function looks like in the true RV. There are quantitative ways of assessing this and reporting this, of course, such as a Seller-Meyer index that Dr. Lin just discussed. And this helps us to know how severe a patient's Epstein's anomaly is. Some of the other views that we'd need to look for are the subcostal and the apical views for an interatrial level shunt, though this is often best seen on transesophageal echo if you don't see it on transthoracic. And to finish up, the left ventricle should not be neglected because, as we said, it's often dysplastic and non-compacted. And because of the myopathy that's inherent in Epstein's anomaly, the interventricular septum may often be dyssynchronous and this may be contributing to symptoms, so assessment of the interventricular septum becomes quite important when we are looking at echocardiograms of these patients. I absolutely agree with all of that. Echocardiographic evaluation of tricuspid regurgitation in the Epstein's patient can be very challenging, surprisingly challenging, actually. In the typical adult patient with tricuspid regurgitation, you know where the leaflets coapt. And you know that the tricuspid regurgitation vena contracta converges at the central coaptation of the leaflet of the leaflets in a way that you can see in their RV inflow view or in an apical four-chamber view. In Epstein's anomaly, the valve leaflets may coapt so poorly that there is no real vena contracta for you to identify. In those with some leaflet coaptation, the coaptation point is highly variable and oftentimes very difficult to visualize in any standard adult echo views. We always approach these echoes with a high index of suspicion for severe low-flow, low-gradient TR, and look at valve morphology, the color Doppler, and the shape of the spectral Doppler tracing. If you see a triangular 
pointy spectral Doppler tracing rather than the usual parabolic spectral Doppler tracing for TR, suspect severe TR. Hepatic vein flow reversal, which is oftentimes a useful tool in determining severe TR in the normal patient, is oftentimes absent in the Epstein's patient because of the reasons that Master P pointed out earlier. The massively dilated right edge atrium absorbs that TR flow rather than transmitting the TR jet back into the hepatic veins. Wow, I mean, you were right. Like, there's nothing else like the window that we get into the heart with echocardiography. Thank you so much for all of that. That's very interesting, just all of the different sort of hemodynamic differences that we see in tricuspid regurgitation in the normal population compared to what we see in Epstein's. So it sounds like we get a lot of great information on echo, including the structural abnormalities of the valve itself, possible associated defects, these hemodynamic consequences that we've been talking about, as well as sort of ventricular dilation and dysfunction and septal shift in that in turn, impeding LV filling. So what other diagnostic studies do you think would be useful to evaluate this patient who's just been diagnosed with Epstein anomaly, given that we already have so much information? I mean, his symptoms are concerning to me. Do we potentially go into, you know, some sort of functional testing? I think an exercise stress test would be very helpful in this patient for multiple reasons. Stress testing will give us a quantified measure of functional capacity of anyone with an underlying myopathy and a valvulopathy. And at UCLA, we, we would typically perform a cardiopulmonary exercise test with stress echo. And we do this for maximal yield because we get multiple pieces of data. Firstly, we would obtain a metric, namely a peak VO2, which is a quantitative endpoint that you can compare with age and sex match controls to see how severely debilitated from a functional standpoint an Epstein's patient is. The stress echo will also very importantly show you whether the right ventricle appropriately augments its systolic function with exercise. And this will give you a sense of right ventricular contractile reserve. And the contractile reserve of the RV is something that would really play into management decisions for a patient like this for instance, how they would do with a cardiopulmonary bypass, for instance, if you're taking this patient to surgery. A cardiopulmonary exercise test with pulse oximetry can also be extremely useful to detect the presence of exercise-induced hypoxemia because of increased right-to-left shunting across either a known or sometimes undiagnosed interatrial shunt with exercise. And this is often a major reason why these Epstein's patients become symptomatic and present to you as their first diagnosis in clinic. In addition to stress testing, we often order additional cardiodiagnostic tests. For instance, cardiac MRI can be quite useful for chamber size and function quantification. And a cardiac cath with shunt oximetry can provide information regarding not only intracardiac pressures, but also the degree of interatrial shunting and cardiac output. So there are a multitude of tests that we can use to assess the different abnormalities that you see in patients with Epstein's anomaly. One of the themes that you'll see in your ACHD series of podcasts is that surveillance is very important for all of our patients with congenital heart conditions, including those with Epstein's and severe TR. Patients are very, very good at just adapting to their limitations. So when you see them, they may not report exercise intolerance at their clinic visits, or they may report their exercise tolerance, but you may not be convinced that any changes in exercise tolerance are due to a cardiac etiology. 
So a downward trend in exercise tolerance or peak VO2 would prompt further evaluation and consideration for valve intervention. No, thanks so much for that. That makes a lot of sense seeing, you know, making sure that we're keeping tabs on our patients in terms of how well they're tolerating, you know, stress while at the same time knowing that they are restricting themselves because of their own baseline. It sounds like it can get complicated very quickly. And I completely agree with you. The idea of surveillance is hugely important. Something else about the aptly named Mr. Wolf Park, though, is that he's also complaining of some palpitations. And a recurrent theme across the ACHD series is how the structural and hemodynamic abnormalities of both the lesions and their prior management can predispose them to arrhythmias. So what do you think about these palpitations? Well, you know, Josh, I bet a resting ECG might provide a wealth of information here. What should we be expecting and looking for, Master P? Well, that's a great thought. And I think a resting ECG is a great place to start with some of these patients because they have multiple findings that you may see. So First of all, many of these patients will have really tall peaked P waves that have been described classically as Himalayan P waves. And this is because of their severe enlargement of the right atrium, given the anatomic abnormality of the tricuspid valve septum leaflet displacement, but also right atrial enlargement from progressive tricuspid regurgitation. You often see first degree AV block and right bundle branch block. You can also see atypical S-waves due to abnormal depolarization in the atrialized right ventricle. And then there's obviously a number of considerations when a patient is reporting palpitations, like Mr. Park is in clinic. So the important point here is that Mr. Park's palpitations should prompt evaluation for arrhythmias that may either occur at rest, which would be ambulatory ECG monitors that can detect arrhythmias at rest, but also with stress, such as a stress test. So patients with Epstein's are plagued by a whole host of arrhythmias like Josh had alluded to, and these can be both acquired and intrinsic arrhythmias. So the acquired arrhythmias occur because of progressive right atrial dilation from chronic tricuspid regurgitation, and these can include macro reentrant tachycardia, such as atrial flutter, which is seen in over 20% of patients with Epstein's. You can also see focal atrial tachycardia in anywhere from 2 to 20% of these patients and AV nodal reentrant tachycardia or AVNRT, which you also see very frequently in this population, especially as they age into adulthood. When it comes to intrinsic arrhythmias, the most significant intrinsic arrhythmic entity that is seen in over a third of patients with Epstein's anomaly is the Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome occurring due to accessory AV pathways. The interesting thing and an often tested question on cardiology boards is that the WPW in patients with Epstein's anomaly in two-thirds of cases constitutes right-sided pathways. And the thing about right-sided accessory pathways on an electrocardiogram is that the, the delta waves that you see are often inverted in the inferior leads. And this can often mimic a Q-wave infarction in the inferior leads which is what this patient's ECG suggested, prompting an ischemia evaluation. The combination of acquired supraventricular tachycardia, such as flutter and AV reentrant tachycardia from a Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, can also cause one-to-one -one conduction into the ventricle and can precipitate ventricular tachyarrhythmias, and especially ventricular fibrillation. And ventricular tachycardia or fibrillation can also occur because of severe inherent myocardial dysfunction that we do see with Epstein's anomaly, especially in severe cases. 
I would emphasize again that the association of WPW and Epstein's is a favorite cardiology boards question for those of you studying for the cardiology boards, but certainly isn't the only arrhythmia that we can see in Epstein's. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of information we've covered so far. And thinking back to the structural hemodynamic clinical paradigm, Prashant, you taught us that the chief structural issues are with the tricuspid valve as well as the right ventricle in Epstein's anomaly, potentially even affecting the LV, like we said, no flow, no grow. We may have accessory pathways and a whole host of associated congenital lesions, probably most commonly of which would be atrial level shunting defects. Hemodynamically, the consequences we might expect are of variable degrees of tricuspid regurgitation, RV dysfunction, the accessory pathway with early conduction, as well as right-sided chamber dilation, potentially with septal shift. The clinical consequences are, again, varying degrees of right-sided heart failure, consequences of shunting like cyanosis and paradoxical emboli, a whole host of arrhythmias, not just limited to WPW like Dr. Lin just highlighted, as well as the feared complication of sudden cardiac death. So stepping back, that's a lot to take in and a lot to diagnose and manage for our patients. What are some of the medical and interventional management strategies for mitigating Mr. Park's symptoms? Well, there are several strategies for treating someone like Mr. Park. Some of the ways that we could manage his symptoms medically would include oral diuretic therapy, especially if he has symptoms of heart failure on the right side. Beta blocker therapy is often used in these patients to mitigate symptoms of arrhythmia. But definitive management of Mr. Park's accessory pathway should really be done via EP study and a catheter ablation. I must emphasize that all patients with Epstein's anomaly and the WPW pattern on ECG should undergo an EP study since the presence of an accessory pathway is an independent risk factor for mortality. And we treat these WPW patterns in Epstein's patients much more aggressively than we would treat a WPW pattern in somebody without Epstein's anomaly who may present incidentally with this finding on an electrocardiogram. Absolutely. If we did feel that this patient is headed for tricuspid valve surgery, even if he didn't have WPW pattern on an EKG, we would still recommend an EP study prior to surgery. We have found that many patients with MCNs are prone to atrial flutter for the reasons that Master P has mentioned. Since some of these patients will end up with a tricuspid valve replacement that covers the cabotricuspid isthmus for atrial flutter ablation, we will preemptively address that prior to surgery. Now that makes sense. So now that we've sorted out Mr. Park's palpitations and we feel like we have an understanding for his physiology, what are the aspects of his uh, symptoms that would lead you to pull the trigger on valve surgery or to not pull the trigger on valve surgery? And then, you know, in that vein, what are some of the considerations in preoperative planning and how would you counsel Mr. Park regarding repair or replacement of the tricuspid valve? As I mentioned earlier, we at UCLA routinely refer our patients for EP study prior to surgery to eliminate a flutter pathway that may be difficult to access after tricuspid valve replacement. Beyond that, timing of surgery is a very nuanced decision since some patients will remain well compensated for decades. Clear indications for surgical referral would be exercise intolerance, refractory arrhythmias, and progressive RV dilation or dysfunction. 
but you don't want to wait so long that the d- degree of RV dilation and dysfunction is so severe that it would impart a higher morbidity or mortality with surgery. Regarding the question of valve repair versus replacement, this depends a lot on surgeon experience with Epstein's anomaly. We know in adult cardiology, for example, that mitral valve repair is very dependent on the surgeon's volume and skill level with that type of surgery. Epstein surgery is arguably one of the most technically challenging surgeries for the congenital cardiac surgeon. And the surgeons with the best outcomes are those who have done a large, large number of cases. In experienced centers, tricuspid valve repair has been and remains the preferred approach in patients with anatomy that is suitable for a good repair. The hope is that a good tricuspid valve repair will last a patient at least 15 or 20 years, though it is not uncommon to eventually need reoperation for tricuspid valve replacement. With the advent of transcatheter valve replacements, we can now perform transcatheter valve and valve procedures in the tricuspid position in patients with bioprosthetic tricuspid valve dysfunction. And so we are now seeing a slight shift in some centers towards tricuspid valve replacement as the initial surgery as a result. Usually, bioprosthetic tricuspid valve replacement is our preference given inferior survival outcomes for mechanical tricuspid valve replacements in a low-pressure, low-flow circuit. So we would always recommend for the patient getting a tricuspid valve replacement, a tissue valve, and not a mechanical valve. Master P mentioned the RV myopathy being a big issue in Epstein's and that it is a, both a primary myopathy and it is also a result of longstanding tricuspid regurgitation. Again, the goal is to wait as long as we can so that we can minimize the number of surgeries and interventions that the patient will need in his or her lifetime, but not to wait so long that surgical risk, morbidity, mortality have increased due to that progressive RV dysfunction. Wow. Thank you so much. That's a huge amount to keep in mind, especially considering sort of where we're going with transcatheter technologies and kind of trying to set up sort of the optimal sequence for a patient. So just to keep going along with Mr. Park, he got his EP study and a right-sided accessory pathway was eliminated. He was found to have poor functional capacity on stress testing with appropriate RV augmentation with stress, a moderate size secundum ASD on TEE, and a significant right-to-left shun on catheterization associated with reduced cardiac output. He was recommended for valve repair after a heart team consultation. Now, Master P, you know, I've seen a good number of tricuspid valve repairs, but I imagine that in these types of situations where we have two dysplastic leaflets and one that's potentially redundant and fenestrated, there's potentially a fair amount of nuance to what we're going to see here. So could you tell us some of the basics of what a surgical correction of Epstein anomaly might look like? Absolutely, Josh. And I think, just as you said, unique situations call for unique approaches. Dr. Joe Derany, who is a pioneering and legendary cardiothoracic surgeon from the Mayo Clinic, has said that more surgical techniques for valve repair have been devised for Epstein's anomaly than for any other condition in all of cardiac surgery. And this points to the underlying issue with Epstein's, that it comes in several different phenotypes. And the advent of cardioplegia and cardiopulmonary bypass have further revolutionized and refined surgical techniques and modes of operation. So even though there are many, many different techniques and modifications to pre-existing techniques 
that are used for tricuspid valve repair in Epstein's anomaly, there are two major principles of surgical repair that we can go over that are quite commonly seen in all of these different techniques. And these two major principles are plication and leaflet mobilization. So let's talk about plication first. Plication, as the name suggests, effectively involves folding excessive tissue that's located along a surgical plane and suturing the tissue folds together, thereby reducing the diameter of that plane. So for example, when you do a plication surgically in the horizontal plane, you would do that, for instance, at the plane of a dilated tricuspid valve annulus. And when you plicate in that plane, it would reduce the size of the tricuspid valve annulus and allow better leaflet coaptation to occur. But you may also want to perform vertical plication in the basal to apical plane. And this involves folding and suturing together parts of atrial or ventricular tissue in the longitudinal plane. And this would serve to reduce the size of the atrialized RV, which we said was often markedly thin, dilated, and really not contributing significantly to cardiac output. You'd want to reduce the amount of redundant atrialized RV that the patient has postoperatively. It may also serve to reduce the size of a severely dilated anatomic right atrium, once again allowing for a better sit of the uh, tricuspid valve. Now, leaflet mobilization, on the other hand, involves freeing the apically displaced septal and posterior leaflets and detaching them from their pre-existing location and reattaching them to the true annulus such that they can be incorporated into the repaired valve. There's a bit of history here because the initial techniques for surgical tricuspid valve repair in Epstein's patients focused mainly on plication. But since the advent of cardiopulmonary bypass, cardioplegia, and better surgical techniques for myocardial preservation, surgeons started focusing on mobilizing the leaflets more, in addition to performing plication. While there are several different flavors of Epstein's tricuspid valve repair, the most popular or widely known form of conventional repair is what's called the cone repair. And in the cone repair, the posterior and septal leaflets are freed from their attachments to the right ventricle, mobilized, and brought to the true tricuspid annulus where they should originally have been. And once they are mobilized and brought to the true annulus, they are sutured together with the anterior tricuspid leaflet. And this creates a single monocusp valve that on echocardiography you will see is shaped like a cone, hence the name cone repair. Some modifications to this involve atrial resection instead of plication, and the incorporation of autologous pericardial tissue into the monocusp valve, particularly if the amount of leaflet tissue in the native septal and posterior leaflets is deficient to allow for a conventional type cone repair. So there are many different ways in which cone repair and other techniques have been modified to achieve optimal results. But you do have situations in which a repair is not feasible. For instance, if there's too little native valve tissue or for other reasons, for instance. And in those cases, a tissue bioprosthesis is usually preferred, like Dr. Lin explained. In addition, emphasis is often placed on non-valvular surgery at the time of valve repair. And what does that mean? For instance, the interatrial shunt, 
which can often be a cause of exercise-induced hypoxia and symptoms, like we mentioned, should be surgically addressed and usually is patch-closed. And arrhythmia surgery, such as a right-sided maze procedure, should be strongly considered, especially in patients with dilated right atria and symptoms of arrhythmia. So a lot to take in there in terms of the different ways in which surgical repair has been performed over the years and decades for Epstein's patients. And in cases where you cannot repair the valve, you should consider tricuspid replacement with the bioprosthetic valve preferentially, but also keep in mind that things such as the interatrial shunt and some of the arrhythmic burden should also be addressed in addition to focusing on the valve in Epstein's patients surgically. In addition to everything that was just mentioned, I would also add that for patients with very stiff right ventricles, a Glen shunt can also be considered. A Glen shunt is a surgery in which the superior vena cava is anastomosed to the right pulmonary artery. And as you can imagine what that does, it brings the systemic venous return from the upper body directly to the pulmonary arteries, thus bypassing the right ventricle. That can effectively volume unload the right ventricle somewhat and improve hemodynamics. Thank you so much for uh, those great explanations for what we would expect to see after uh, tricuspid valve repair in this, you know, very, very sort of special population with lots of considerations to take in. Dr. Lin, would you be able to expand on what we would expect in terms of a typical long-term outcomes after an Epstein surgery? And what do you tell your patients regarding post-operative outcomes and need for follow-up? Thanks, Josh. Because there is so much variability in Epstein's anomaly and because it's a relatively uncommon lesion, it's very difficult to comment on long-term outcomes. What data are currently available on survival in Epstein's have been older case series prior to the current era of surgical and transcatheter treatments. Postoperatively, we would counsel a patient that we will be checking in with him or her every 6 to 12 months and asking about symptoms of exercise intolerance and palpitations, and that we would continue periodic cardiopulmonary exercise testing. We would certainly counsel our patients that they may require repeat EP studies in the future and that they will almost certainly require repeat intervention on the tricuspid valve in the future, but that we hope it will not be for many years. We would ask them to maintain regular follow-up with an ACHD center lifelong. Thank you. And so now that we've taken such good care of Mr. Park, let's move on to our second case, who is Miss Elizabeth Glenn. She's a 39-year-old woman with type 2 diabetes on insulin who had a modified cone repair at age 5 with a tricuspid annuloplasty ring placed at age 18 for worsening tricuspid regurgitation and exercise intolerance. She had a subsequent atrial flutter ablation and right-sided pathway ablation two years later for SVT. She was lost to follow-up for the last 10 years since she moved to different cities and has now been re referred to the clinic as an urgent consultation after being discharged from an outside hospital after an admission for acute decompensated heart failure requiring IV diuresis. She has been experiencing worsening dyspnea on exertion for the last year and has NYHA class 3 heart failure symptoms at baseline. She is acyanotic, but volume overloaded with elevated JVP on exam, has a pulsatile liver with 2-plus pitting edema up to her shins. Her transthoracic echocardiogram shows torrential tricuspid regurgitation, a severely dilated right ventricle with severely reduced systolic function that was further quantified on cardiac MR as an RVEF of 25%. 
The interventricular septum is desynchronous and flattened during diastole, but LV systolic function is largely preserved with trace mitral regurgitation. ECG shows no pre-excitation, but a right bundle branch block and a QRS of 160 milliseconds. Peak VO2 is 15 milliliters per kilogram with suboptimal augmentation of RV function with exercise. Master P, what are some of the treatment options that should be considered in the case of Ms. Glenn? Josh, this is a very, very problematic situation that we have encountered, sadly, not infrequently. And I think this speaks to what Dr. Lin had mentioned earlier on about the importance of long-term follow-up of these patients. This, I must emphasize, is a theme that you are going to see time and again in not just this episode, but you know multiple episodes that you're going to see in your series, that a patient has a repair of a congenital cardiac condition early on and for many reasons do not follow up. They have significant symptomatic improvement and often enough present in extremis several years down the line. This patient, for instance, had what presumably would have been a successful cone repair in the immediate post-operative setting, probably had symptomatic improvement and resolution of the arrhythmia symptoms with her ablations, and probably didn't feel the need to continue long-term follow-up even when asymptomatic. And unfortunately, at this point in time, presents with torrential tricuspid regurgitation of the repaired valve and essentially evidence of really bad right ventricular failure with a poor contractile reserve and functional capacity. So in terms of managing someone like this, which is often a typical adult congenital case to manage, we again sort of start with the medical therapy and then think about some of the non-medical procedural options for intervention. So medical therapy for this patient in right ventricular failure should definitely be considered. Diuretics in particular should be instituted during this visit. But some of the longer-term options obviously have to be looked at given these mechanical issues with the tricuspid valve and her functional capacity being diminished. This would be a pretty long discussion with the patient and a multidisciplinary heart team. But some of the options that we would consider for this pretty sick patient would be whether or not a valve could be re-repaired. So she had a cone repair. Could it be re-repaired and could we uh, stave off a surgical bioprosthetic valve? Or do we need to replace this valve and put in a new valve instead, surgically? While we do either of those, should we think about creating a Glen shunt, which is the SVC to right pulmonary artery shunt, that Dr. Lin described. Should we consider a heart transplantation? Is this right ventricle too far beyond salvage after a bypass run and a re-repair or a replacement? Or could we consider something that is a non-surgical approach altogether and focus on our more modern transcatheter technology, for instance, a transcatheter tricuspid valve replacement, given that this patient has an annuloplasty ring that was placed at the time of her cone repair. So a lot of considerations here, and this would be a pretty long discussion with the heart team. Yeah, there are a lot of options we just went over available to us in the therapeutic arsenal. And I can only imagine that there's probably not a lot of data to guide us in the specific scenario. So I imagine this is where the art of medicine and shared decision-making with the heart team experienced in ACHD care really comes into play. But Dr. Lin, how would you potentially approach the management of this particular case? And how would you weigh the different options that Master P outlined? 
I agree that the main question here is how to address severe tricuspid regurgitation in a patient with severe right ventricular dysfunction. We would want to start by getting more information, and a right heart catheterization would be helpful in weighing her options and understanding her pulmonary pressures and her wedge pressures, for example. A re-repair, unfortunately, is unlikely to be very successful. We generally will attempt repair on an Epstein's valve once, after which a second surgery would most likely entail a replacement. Now, transcatheter procedures are an interesting consideration. Transcatheter valve and ring procedures have certainly been done in cases like this where the patient is a high-risk surgical candidate. The advantage of the transcatheter approach is that it avoids a repeat bypass run for what is already a very compromised right ventricle. The downside of the transcatheter valve and ring procedure is that she would likely be left with a significant residual tricuspid regurgitation burden due to perivalvar leak between the transcatheter valve and the open part of the ring. Leaving her with some residual TR may be a good strategy when the RV may not be able to handle the increased afterload well if we were to completely eliminate the tricuspid regurgitation but we don't really have a way of dialing up or down in the cath lab the degree of residual TR in cases like this. Now, surgical tricuspid valve replacement would definitively address the TR, but at the risk of worsening RV dysfunction due to both the cardiopulmonary bypass run and a myopathic right ventricle, as well as the increased afterload. If the pulmonary pressures are low, a Glenn shunt would potentially be helpful. If she is felt to be a very high surgical risk due to the RV myopathy, then the next step would, of course, be a transplant evaluation. And based on the transplant candidacy, it would then be decided whether to attempt tricuspid valve replacement with that backup or to proceed straight to transplant if she's felt to be a better candidate for transplant upfront. This is a really good case example of the complexity that we often face in congenital heart disease, and it really requires a team approach with the ACHD cardiologist, the ACHD interventionist, the congenital surgeon, as well as a heart failure and transplant team. Wow, what a great discussion. Thanks to everybody for you know providing us background and sort of understanding about the approach to these two different types of patients that we see that both have Epstein anomaly and really help to tell us about sort of the natural history that we encounter when patients present to us as adults. Just kind of a, you know, an adult issue to bring up in this type of context is Miss Glenn is a 39-year-old woman. And so just with that in mind, is it often that you encounter patients like this in your clinic that ask you about the potential for getting pregnant? in having children? Yeah, absolutely. Even if patients don't bring up the question to us in clinic, we oftentimes will bring up this topic for our female patients. And discussions about family planning and contraception are part of every ACHD visit for the female patient and for some of our male patients too. What we know is that in general, if you have a patient with Epstein's and tricuspid regurgitation who is well compensated and is not symptomatic and doesn't have signs or symptoms of heart failure, that pregnancy can be very well tolerated. But in a patient who's symptomatic to begin with, pregnancy is unlikely to be well tolerated. And for a patient like this, I would certainly counsel regular use of reliable contraception. And I would advise against pregnancy, both because of the regurgitation and because of the heart failure. 
Thanks so much. All right. Well, with that, I think we've taken care of everybody who's been in our clinic today. And so let's just finish up. And I wanted to ask Dr. Lynn what gets her excited about practice in adult congenital heart disease on a day-to-day basis. As you can tell, there is no dull moment for us in the congenital heart clinic. Every single patient teaches us something and challenges us in a different way. There is never any chance in my hopefully 30-some year career that I will ever be bored, even for a moment in my clinic. I love working with this patient population. I love the stimulation that these cases provide for us every single day. I love working with my colleagues and teaching and learning from my fellows as well. So it's just a, a great field to be in. And I'm lucky to be able to work with people like Master P every day. Awesome. Now, Master P, kind of focusing on you a little bit. ACHD is, you know, is growing and growing and is a huge field that overlaps with so many other subspecialties that exist within adult cardiology. I'd be really interested to hear about what your experience is like as an ACHD fellow and how you feel like you're making career plans moving forward as you go on to the next stage of things. Absolutely, Josh. I will echo a lot of what Dr. Lynn has already said about the joys of being an ACHD provider. And in my short experience doing this, I will definitely say I'm truly blessed to be in a high volume ACHD center such as UCLA, where we truly get exposed to both the depth and breadth of ACHD. And in addition to learning from master educators such as Dr. Lin, I've been fascinated by the variety of cases we see on a daily basis. And that really is why I chose to do something like this. We see both repaired and unrepaired congenital heart diseases that come in both inpatient and outpatient settings and different variety of flavors that we get to experience. I must also add that I really enjoy my patient interactions. These patients are truly inspirational. They've had to face a lot of adversity right from the time that they were born quite often. And despite that, they're incredible sense of resolve and courage and determination to move forward despite that and make often successful paths for themselves is truly, truly inspirational. Taking care of patients like this is very, very rewarding. And I must say that the field is very rewarding even when things don't go as we would have hoped for, because we need to acknowledge that ACHG providers in this country are still a scarce commodity, even though the community is growing. And providing much-needed specialist longitudinal care for patients in their prime of life and, and even beyond as they age into their 60s, 70s, and 80s is truly fulfilling. The other thing is that there's so much academic opportunity in this field, so much that we don't know, but also so much scope for the art of medicine that Amit has discussed earlier in the podcast today. And I think that, that makes it a lot of fun to work in, in this field. Regarding my career plans, I'm still in the process of figuring out exactly what shape my ACHD career down the line is going to take. I've been exploring options both in non-invasive ACHD cardiology as well as looking into some of the procedural sides of the field, especially electrophysiology, given, as we've seen with these cases in our clinic today, how many of our patients are plagued by arrhythmias on a daily basis. The scope really for expansion of this field is vast. And we do need to sustain the growth in the community of ACHD providers by A, continuing to talk about it to the larger cardiology community, and B, target residents and fellows in their early years of training 
just like you guys at Cardio Nerds are doing so amazingly well in uh, all the different subspecialties of cardiology. And I'm really, really glad that you guys are spreading the message uh, of ACHD starting with our podcast today. So I'm so thrilled to be an ACHD fellow and definitely to be joining you guys and Dr. Lin as part of this discussion today. Thanks so much, Master P. And I completely agree with your sentiment that we need to get more of our residents and fellows to go into ACHD. It is, I mean, I'm not biased or anything, but by far the coolest subspecialty within cardiology that exists today. And with that, I, I just want to thank everybody for the time they spent with us uh, teaching us about Epstein Anomaly. I had a fantastic time. I hope you all did too. And thank you very much and really appreciate your time. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for having us. Hey, Cardio Nerd. My name is Karen Stout. I'm an ACHD nerd at the University of Washington in Seattle. And I'm a member of the Medical Advisory Board with the Adult Congenital Heart Association. Not long ago, congenital heart disease was widely considered to be an exclusively pediatric field, given the short lifespan of our patients. However, advances in diagnosis and management have transformed many patients' lives and brought them into adulthood. There are now more adults living with CHD than children. This growing population requires a specialized and personalized approach from multidisciplinary teams. While not every cardio nerd will specialize in ACHD, you will all have the opportunity to touch the lives of adult patients with congenital heart disease, recognize their unique needs, and refer them to the appropriate centers if and when needed. We need both trainees eager to care for this patient population and non-ACHD providers to have fundamental knowledge about these conditions for optimal practice while working in tandem with board-certified adult congenital heart disease providers. We congratulate the cardio nerds on their mission to democratize cardiovascular education and for creating this series to raise awareness about ACHD. I'm glad to say that this episode and all others in this series are brought to you in collaboration with the Adult Congenital Heart Association. ACHA's mission is to empower the CHD community by advancing access to resources and specialized care that improve patient-centered outcomes. The cardio nerds have clearly done that here. If you'd like to contribute to ACHA to provide educational resources, opportunities to connect with other providers, become a part of the Medical Advisory Board, or apply for ACHA research funding, please email info at achaheart.org. Again, email is info at achaheart, all one word, dot org. If you're interested in learning more about clinical congenital heart disease diagnosis and management, please note that there are free educational online resources available through Heart University and the Congenital Heart International Professionals, or CHIP, networks. Both have tremendous resources to provide further depth to your understanding of ACHD. You can find more about the ACHA, CHIP, and HeartUniversity.com in the episode description on the Cardio Nerds website. Thank you. Boop. Boop.